So hello everyone, this is a special edition of the Agile Tao Talks with Peter Merrill who took the liberty of refactoring the Book of Tao into something that I think is wonderful, that's why I made the podcast, called the Agile Tao, where he took a book that was canonic in my eyes with a certain structure and traditional sort of translations, even if the, all the translations are different, and made it into something refreshingly new, original, and something that talks to me even more than the original. And today I would love, as part of the series, after we finished three cycles through the three parts of the book, which we'll talk about uh, as well today, to have a special edition where we talk about, one, the history of the book, and two, the history of the book as well. So one, the history of the book, meaning where, where did the Tao come from? Where did the Lao Tzu book originate from? And two, how did this edition of the book, the Ajal Tao, came into being? All of this to say hello, Peter. I don't. Uh, that is a, a, a lot, and I will try not to ramble too much. <laughs> where would you like to start? So I uh, read the Book of Tao a lot of times for years now, even more more years than since I was introduced to the book. I am an Agile coach uh, before I was a Scrum Master, and I fell in love with both. And after a while, I started noticing that there's a deep connection between the two, that the Book of Tao talks about agility that the advice that is given by the Book of Tao is an advice for an Agile coach, how to see the organization, how to set in motion harmony, how process without understanding of people is futile and sometimes even less than this. And I wrote an article in LinkedIn talking about Lao Tzu being the first Agile coach, and you said, yes, of course he is, and in fact... I've spent my life writing or translating the Book of Tao, and then I left it and I wrote another book which took a different approach. And this is how I was introduced to your book. And this is where I start from. So would you like to take it off from there, sure. before or after, whatever you'd like? Um, okay. There are a lot of starting points. Um, for me, I had three English translations of Lao Tzu in my late father's library. And he'd never discussed the book with me, and I didn't know it was important to him. So I sat down after his death to try and understand what was this about. And I was really surprised that these three English translations were completely different to one another. So I started looking at them systematically side by side. And this was the early days of the internet. I think this would have been 1989, 1990, thereabouts. And the Australian National University, uh, as it turned out, had a, a Sinology mailing list with a bunch of very accomplished professors of Sinology and so on who were just making uh, contact with each other electronically for the first time. So a friend of mine heard about my interest and saw some of the notes that I was taking and suggested I try putting those notes up there and see what they thought of it. And I got lucky. They totally ripped what I had uh, written down to shreds. They took my notes and said, oh, rubbish is bullshit for this reason, this reason, this reason. 
I had found a motherload of expertise and wisdom and understanding. So I didn't speak any Chinese. I, I just was working from bringing those translations, trying to glue them together in different ways. So I put together another version and put it up on the Sinology mailing list. And they tore that one to shreds. And I went, wow, that's fantastic. I'm learning so much. This is great. I don't know if they had the same experience. So I kept doing that for the next three years. And, and finally, I got to a point where they stopped ripping it to shreds. And I thought, well, okay, I guess um, maybe what I've done is reasonable. Now, what do I do with it? I don't know. I'm Obviously, I'm not going to try and publish a translation that's not a translation from the Chinese. I wouldn't understand the originals. How could I possibly? Uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll make it free. I'll put a, a GNU public license on it. And I'll send it out into the internet and uh, encourage people to improve it. And so I did that, and I didn't worry about it then for quite a long time. And then maybe, I don't know, 15 years later, a friend of mine was looking at, um, uh, there used to be a site called, I think it was called chinapages.org, or chinapage.org, uh, Professor M.L. Pei, if I recall correctly. Um, it was the most popular English language website on the Chinese internet. I think it was also called China the Beautiful. Uh, amongst other things, it had... Uh, a copy of the uh, Lao Tzu in Chinese, and then next to an English translation, which was mine. They basically taken my my the thing I put under the GNU public license. I called it the GNL, uh, sort of because GNU means uh, GNU is not Unix. Uh, I thought, well, GNL can be GNL is not Lao Tzu, so um, they they used that as the translation. I was horrified. I wrote the guy who maintained the site. You, you need to know this isn't really this is an interpolation, it's not a real translation. And uh, Professor Pei was very kind. He wrote back and uh, said he, he, he figured that, but he really, really liked it. Uh, and um, since it was available free, did I mind if as long as I, he included the licenses? Of course, I'm, I'm happy with that. So it was my first inkling that maybe there was something of value in this beyond a, a kind of a dodgy translation that had made some sinologists and academic sinologists stop being upset with me. So then a really weird thing happened. A gentleman named Oliver Benjamin contacted me. Uh, and Ollie said, look, I want to start a religion, he said. Uh, I want to start a religion based on the, the Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. Uh, I want to call it Dudism. And I want to use your translation of Lao as the Bible of Dudism. And I'm going to put some funny notes that are sort of in the Big Lebowski tradition on it. And I'm going to call it the Dude Day Ching. Can I do that? And I said, well, as long as you stick to the license, you give the thing away. And sure, you can do that. So he said, yeah, I'll give it away for free, which he did. And a year later, he had 250,000 Dudist priests that he had ordained for $10 each. (laughs) Oliver um, lives in Chiang Mai and apparently does pretty well for himself out of Dudism. So I think he calls himself the high doodly lama these days. But anyway, so, and again, I was horrified because there's hundreds of thousands of people who are thinking that what I've done is a translation of Lao Tzu. Maybe I should do a translation, a proper translation of Lao Tzu. Uh, And I had over the years been gathering uh, English translations. I never thought I would ever go back to the actual Chinese pictograms because I don't speak Chinese. What makes me think I could read Chinese? Well, 
One of the translations I, I obtained was um, uh, written by a guy who was not a, a Chinese scholar. He was a Sanskrit scholar, a gentleman named Professor Victor Meyer. And Meyer, in his introduction, uh, said that uh, he had noticed that there were these deep philological connections, word choice connections, between the Lao Tzu and the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the oldest of the, the texts in the Vedic tradition. And he concluded, after deep study, that either one of these books was a bad translation of the other, or both of them were interpretations of some lost oral tradition. And I read this, and I went, oh, wow, I am making a terrible mistake, but I, I am not making the mistake I think I'm making. I thought that what I had written was a bad translation of the original, because it was based on a bunch of intermediary translations. There is no original. The Lao Tzu was not originally written in Chinese. To, to, not necessarily to back this up, but to relate it to, to something. Maya went on to become very well recognized for discovering uh, mummies in the Tarim Basin, the desert uh, in um, uh, western China. And uh, these mummies are 10,000 years old. And the people that have been mummified are six foot to six foot six, with red hair and pale skin. And they wear tartan and witches' hats. They, they look like Scots. What are these Scots doing mummified in the middle of the Turin Basin? What culture did they bring with them? Where did these ideas come from? And that was when I began to think, you know, maybe, maybe it's not just me who's doing a bad job of translation. Maybe all the translators for the last 3,000 years have been doing a bad job of translation. Why is this poem in pieces? Because it is in pieces. If you look at the, the usual Chinese or English translations of the Lao Tzu, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You've got a little piece over here that seems to connect to another little piece over here, and these two pieces over here, but then suddenly it changes subject, and then it comes back. And by the time you've read halfway through, your head's reeling with different ideas and different people's interpretations of those ideas. The oldest edition of the Tao that we have comes from a place in China called Maolengdui. And it's etched into bamboo slats that were tied together with string. It predates uh, the invention of paper and the invention of silk. And the funny thing is that this edition is much shorter than the Chinese editions we have today. Easy half of the poem isn't there. Where did it come from? And there's a bunch of other stuff that is there but that isn't in modern editions. And then the next oldest edition after that is on Silk Scrolls, but it's in a slightly different order. It's very close to the original order. It's not the original order, the order that we have received in most Chinese translations today. But there are variations. So anyway, I started to think, well, we don't know where this thing started. But surely, since the Chinese pictograms haven't changed, at least the Chinese is reliable. This is a tradition. This is a text that we can regard as, as the text, even if it isn't where it originally started. The trouble there is that the earliest editions of the Tao come from 300 years 
before the very first Chinese dictionaries. And the first Chinese dictionaries were all about agriculture and trade. They had very little to explain what the meaning of these pictograms was. And then the pictograms were picked up by various religious traditions. It's actually the only reason that this stuff survived until the modern day, because there were many purges. All the books were burned except for the books that the priests saved. So if there wasn't a religious Taoism to go with philosophical Taoism, which is kind of what we're digging into, if that wasn't the case, then this stuff wouldn't have survived to the present day either. So we don't know what these words originally meant. We have to look at the context of the words to try and puzzle it out. And happily, this is a poem that presumably originally all hung together. These bamboo slats that were tied together with string before paper and silk, they would be given to a noble person because, well, what else are you going to do with such a book? The noble person, maybe they get their sages and their priests to interpret it for them and then they have it thrown into uh, some dungeon somewhere where it sits and rots for a generation or two. We're talking 3,000 years, that's a lot of generations, maybe four. And then, well, the string rots, the slats fall apart. Maybe that person's grandchild or great-grandchild or great-great-great-great-grandchild finds it and goes, oh, here it is, the wisdom of the ages. I must have my scribes and priests interpret it for me and write it down in a form and... They tried to take these bits of bamboo and put them back together again. This whole thing got jumbled up. And then it got jumbled again because uh, a lot of the religious traditions were numerological. And they wanted to have 81 chapters because that was the lucky number. And they wanted to get these things reordered in such a way that the, you'll get various different numerical relationships between the pictograms. Well, that's all. That's not going to be very good for faithfully translating or transmitting the poem. So I realized the mistake that I'd been making originally was that I thought there was an original. I thought there was a, just a one perfect poem that had been translated and all I needed to do was understand the translation. Um, no. What's been going on for 3,000 years or more is like having a jigsaw puzzle scattered on the floor. And everybody's been coming along one at a time, picking up pieces of the puzzle and polishing them, trying to get those pieces as shiny as possible. And never trying to go, how do you plug these pieces together? What picture do you get if you can actually plug them together to make a single flowing poem where each line follows from the one before in each poem? It stands up from the one before. You talk a lot about the book. Yeah. And you talk about polishing the pieces and not seeing the full picture. So what allowed you into this book? The, if it's all jumbled up, why, what pulled you into translating it, a lifetime of translating it from the first place and then refactoring? So you talk about the refactoring part, but what is the book about? You, you didn't say. Well, so this is a book about flow and agility and harmony and leadership and ecosystem and so on. I didn't know exactly what the book was about. I just knew that it had been important enough to my father that, that he'd had three translations. So I thought, okay, well, let me try and understand it. And it becomes self-driving. After a while, you become so invested in what you're doing that it becomes a touchstone for you in your life. For me, I will um, set the book aside uh, for several months and then one thing or another happens, like perhaps a gentleman says to me, hey, 
why don't we do a podcast about the Agile Dow? And I'll go, that's a great idea. I'm no gentleman. And <laughs> <laughs> you'll do until a gentleman comes along. You're the gentlest man I know. Anyway, so, oh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. But I, I haven't finished the book yet. So how are we going to do something like that? Well, I can sort of finish it as we go. And uh, since I, I, I feel pretty confident about the first and the second parts, the third part is still a little bit wibbly wobbly. But if we were to go from part one to part two to part three and basically keep doing that, well, then I'll be able to firm up part three as we go. And then I'll be committed, you know, then basically there'll be all of this me talking about the bloody thing. Uh, I won't be able to, to work on it anymore. It'll, it'll be its own thing. And I'll be free to go and do something else that's bloody stupid. So, um, so I guess it's not that I set out to spend 30 years translating the, the Tao. I set out trying to understand it for myself. And then I wound up in a situation where a bunch of other people were really interested in understanding it too. And I have to finish it. So this seems like a pretty good way to finish it. Okay. And can you, can you say something about the refactoring process itself? Sure. The, the taking things apart and together, the three parts, the, the, the word choices. Yeah. The word choices are where everybody starts there. Everyone who wants to translate Latsu has to struggle. The Tao itself. We've talked about this a little bit before. What does this word mean? The very first line of the poem, the in English, the, Literally, hyperliterally, the Tao that can be doubted isn't really the Tao. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then I just talked about uh, day and, and, and settling on this word harmony, which, to tell the truth, I think is a dreadful word for it. It's, it's got too many syllables. I, I would much prefer it if peace or joy or trust or something fit it better, but they don't. So I have to go with um, what I can find. And, and, and there are a couple of places where I've been able to play off of the, the word harm being embedded in it uh, when we get to some of the gory parts of the poem. But um, word choices, are, however, are the, that's the easy part. Uh, once you've made your choices, then you can go through line by line and you can make a translation. But it won't hang together very well. So then you have to start asking yourself, all right, if I don't need to respect the original order, if that was a historical accident, then which parts go with which parts? And so some, sometimes that's obvious and it's easy to see that all. So we're about to look at, in our next session, we're going to look at uh, chapter four. And chapter four is made of four stanzas and each stanza was pretty much a standalone poem in the original. And when you look at the form of the poems, you start to go, oh, these all, these all relate to each other. This actually hangs together. So that's, that's relatively easy to do. But then there are other parts where, um, you come to the end of a chapter and you go, okay, well, what could the next chapter possibly be? Which of the remaining chapters fits as like the continuation of this train of thought? And that's harder to do, but you can do it. And then you start to ask yourself, oh, well, once you've got this, this much assembled, the first stanza of this chapter might go better as the last stanza of the chapter before, or maybe in the middle of the chapter before. So basically, the work of refactoring is going over this again and again and again, and noticing where there are connections, where perhaps you hadn't made the connection before. Now, this is I'm absolutely 100% certain 
that the way I have refactored this poem is not the way anybody else would and not the only possible good refactoring. It's just the best I can do. So then the other thing that's been really important to me, um, so about 10, maybe 15 years ago now, uh, I started to really try to work from the pictograms. Uh, there are some decent Chinese dictionaries, and there's one wonderful book by a guy named Bradford Hatcher, where um, he has given uh, for each pictogram, he's given a, 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 a set of dictionary meanings. And so it's very easy to then sort of work through uh, Hatcher's book as a, a source text and then compare that with a bunch of the other translations and try to understand the word choices those translators have made. But seeing the Chinese, the pictograms, you start to see that there is a, a form that is inherent to the Chinese poetry that is often lost by translators for the ease of constructing something that has a nice flow in English. Uh, there's a, a gentleman uh, who's best known uh, as a, infamous in magic circles, Alistair Crowley. And Crowley uh, produced a translation of Lao Tzu. Uh, not a very good one, a very Crowleyan one, and worth reading if you're into Crowley. But um, uh, uh, he's best known for a book called The Book of the War. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's very into Kabbalah and all forms of Western magic and so on. Anyway, in his translation, he says, well, this might not be what Lao Tzu meant, but it's what I mean. So uh, I think a lot of translators, they don't hold themselves to, I'm going to try and make this at least have a one-to-one correspondence to the pictograms. And from my point of view, that's got to be there or otherwise a fan. At the same time, if I can't refactor this in such a way that it's going to produce a beautiful, flowing, harmonious poem from end to end in English, then I've failed as well. So those are sort of the two poles of failure. Uh, success in refactoring lies somewhere between the two. One thing I like about your book is that it divides the poems into three poles. I don't know if mm-hmm. three is, is a good uh, number for poles. Poles yeah. is usually two. But th- three three magnets to that, that attract these uh, poems. Mm. Would you like to say something about the decision first to divide yeah. this and yeah. two... What what are they? What are they? Okay, so there were a bunch of chapters that are very nature and flow oriented, and it was easy to go. Okay, well, these are the ones that really I want. As part one, they have to hang together. This really sets the tone for the rest of the poem. And then once I realized that Sheng Ren, uh, which is usually translated as the sage, uh, if you look at the pictograms, it's perfectly legitimate to translate it as agility or as the agile ones. Once you realize that, then that's sort of where we get this idea of the agile Tao. But um, the agile Tao, this word the, is kind of in the original Chinese name, Tao De Qing, the Tao De Qing. Qing is uh, the classic of, or the book of. Uh, the, is basically what it is. So then we've got Agile and Tao, and I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty close to this idea of, of day and Tao. And if we have Tao as flow and all life and so on, and we, we've talked about that, we talked about the first chapter, then, then we have a second part, and that's fine. But that second part had so much stuff in it, 
so many chapters in it. It had to split somehow because the, it was easily twice as big as the first part once I'd done the, this much refactoring. And then the thought was, well, okay, this stuff doesn't all go together. It obviously doesn't all go together. Some of it is clearly advice to some noble person or someone who you as an agilist or as a coach or as a priest or whatever it is you are who's you're giving advice to, to someone who's got power. It's clearly intended for you. It's advice for you to be able to coach. Um, back in the day, in the early days of Agile, uh, I wrote a chapter of the third uh, XP book uh, about the Tao of XP. It's all advice to a coach that uses a lot of those chapters. But then you've got the rest, which is really about agility. And so I started to realize that the split up uh, certainly has to start with flow. And we talk about flow a lot in Lean and Agile, One Piece Flow, uh, Paul, and all that stuff. And then agility, uh, which is really um, uh, about what it means to be uh, in an Agile team or an Agile organization. And then the remaining part, I really want, because it was, it's kind of, it's very heavily focused on day, on harmony. But a lot of it is not about harmony. It's about what happens when you come to grief, when when there's violence, when harmony is disrupted, and how do you advise a leader? So I wanted to make it, I wanted to call it ecosystem because I thought that sounds like a nice progression, flow and agility and ecosystem. But eventually I had to realize that, uh, no, this is about leadership. So that's the third part. And to finish this off, I'd love to go into a place which is more uh, concrete. So if people don't know, uh, you're also... Heavily involved, even the creator of something called Xscale, which is sort of a framework or a pattern language to agile transformation. I think we're calling it a toolkit now. Toolkit, okay. So, so we refactor these as well. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to go necessarily into Xscale, but I would love to see the connection between a concrete way or advice, or a, a framework, God forbid, let's say framework, to help organization and something as high-level, philosophical, and spiritual, I dare say, is, is, the, is the Taoism. Where Did the book inspire the framework? Did the framework inspire the book? Um, people like to talk about the Agile mindset. And then you have Agile values. And the manifesto starts with the values and then the principles, and then we have a lot of different schools of practice, where the idea is the frameworks are really about the practices. Pattern language is a toolkit. I, I, I wanted to avoid the word framework when it comes to Xscale because I want to avoid the idea of prescribing these things and pushing these things. And really, you should use a practice pattern uh, when it solves a problem you're actually experiencing. One of the fundamentals of Agile and of Taoism is Yagni, you aren't going to need it. Uh, you either need it right now or don't worry about it right now. And we have some stuff in uh, the first part of the Agile Dao about that stuff, which we'll come to. But um, the beginning has to be, um, these values come from somewhere. They come from the mindset. And the mindset cannot be expressed. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's it's wordless. It's, 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 the context of the thing which you're working. So it's something that's often passed uh, from person to person as they learn how to work together in an agile way. 
and we have a, a bunch of stuff in in the Agile DAO about this. Uh, when you you come down to it, um, if we try to talk about it, we we lose it in the words. We wind up with prescriptions for things that are not what we actually try to get done. So in Xscale, we talk about values and principles and practice patterns. We talk about it as a toolkit because the phrase pattern language is a bit daunting and everyone's got a toolkit in their garage and that's really all we mean. I didn't try to connect Xscale to the Agile DAO because I thought that you can approach one without the other. But I think what we're doing in this podcast is making the connection clear. So that's good enough. All right. Any last words before we, we end this special edition of our podcast? Last word sounds very important. Um, <laughs> well, how about, uh, Dolph, you, 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 you're always interrogating me here. So I, I guess I would like to ask you, uh, our conversation began with me calling your attention to the Agile Day. I know you've had some time with it and we're doing this podcasting. Since I'm usually answering the questions that I'm holding forth, I'm wondering what's missing in what I'm discussing that's important to you. I think that the language of the book is sometimes too high. It took me a long time to get into it. And when I expose the book to other people, it's hard for them to connect. So I think what's missing to me is some sort of guide of, uh, you know, start here, <laughs> you are here, something that will help people. It's not easy today when, when people are used to read the uh, uh, blogs and listen to uh, uh, podcasts mm. to read poetry, to read texts where every word has a, a, a lot of thought behind it, texts that are dense. So what's missing for me is something that will make a path and help people find their way through the book. So I see that as your role in the work we are doing with this podcast. And I really love that you are doing this because since I have to live in that tension between those two poles of failure I talked about before, I can't enjoy the luxury of just explaining it simply. And so you can keep me honest. So I really like it. All right. Thanks a lot. And uh, see you next time in our <laughs> Back to Flow, the normal uh, reading of the book. Enjoy life and uh, stay away from fires. <laughs> I have fires stay away from me. <laughs> Take it off. Bye-bye.